From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rust. We thank our sponsors, Dryject and Intelligrow, and new sponsors, Plant Food, Greener Golf, and the Greenkeeper app. We really appreciate your support of these sponsors. Nice, nice, baby. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. I'm over grass every week, no missing. Dull blades, leaves it looking unsightly. Grows like a bean sprout daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Sharpen the blades and I'll go. To the extreme, I rock a mower like a racer. Slice off the leaves real clean like a razor. Weeds, bum rush a sprayer with a boom. I'm killing the clover like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly, when I spray a dope herbicide. Anything less than the best ain't bonafide. Love it or leave it, you better give way. You better use bullseye so you can see the spray. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the blade while my My guest today is turfgrass weed scientist extraordinaire and lawn wrap sensation, Professor Sean Askew. Sean's a member of the faculty at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Sean's a leader in the study of annual bluegrass control and more recently an expert in highly precise and measurable putting surface performance. We'll be right back with that conversation after this message from DryGen. I'd like to take a minute and talk to you about Dryject Services that offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. It's a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several different depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local DryJack service representative or visit dryjack.com. No matter where you grow grass for a living or hobby on any continent in the world, including the Antarctic, you will find annual bluegrass. Annual bluegrass control programs have been developed, assessed, and debated for generations. Recently, annual bluegrass control on golf course putting greens is receiving renewed interest due to the release of improved bentgrass varieties, methods of establishment, and new herbicides. Sean Askew has been asking questions such as, how does annual bluegrass actually disrupt putting? And what's the best way to use methazolin, trade name Poacure, the new pre- and post-emergence herbicide from the Mogu Research Center in Korea? Where did your interest come from in first studying annual bluegrass from a functional perspective on the putting surface in that study? Right. So it actually came from uh, the work on pool cure. In 2009, I met uh, SJ Koo at the WSSA meeting. I'd, I'd never met him, didn't know who he was. In fact, one of my grad students has seen his poster and said, hey, you got to check out this poster about pole control, man. Some of the pictures they have are amazing. You know, the plot, the, the overall visual effect of removing the pole. So I went by like two or three times and finally caught him at the poster. I didn't even know if he spoke English and, and we, we hit it off. You know, he got, he got his degree at Cornell and uh, he spoke great English and uh, you know, he, he could school me on, on some things related to weed physiology. And we, we really hit it off. And I, I started doing work with that product pro bono. I, I told him at the time he didn't have, I mean, it's a nine employee company and he didn't have the money. And I said, look, man, this if this does what this poster says that it does, my people need this. So I got about knee deep into that after about a year and a half. And we had some of the most amazing plots. So I designed an experiment with 20 foot long plots 
with the uh, intent of doing stemp measurements because if the product is going to be costly then the average uh, greens committee needs a little more motivation than just you know the grass is going to look better <laughs> and so uh, i thought if i could prove that we get some type of improvement of playability then that would be um, that would help the superintendent down the road and so started doing work and i tell you frank it was one step forward and five back huh. Uh, I started learning just how difficult it was to truly get statistically separable data when dealing with green trueness. And it was an extremely difficult thing to do. We found in the field that our stamp readings were all over the place. We could get improvement, but then the next time you would have weird effects that would not be going in the direction that you thought biologically things should have been. And so we went to the lab. We built a putting lab. Let's see, it was a 25 foot long surface that we use leveling compound it's a special type of concrete that will self-level and uh we checked everything with a laser transit and, and we used uh this um specialty outdoor putting carpet uh -huh. and so we had the synthetic carpet on a perfectly level surface and we rolled tens of thousands of golf balls using different types of uh rolling devices as well as a custom-made uh mechanical putter that used a electromagnet release and in the end, we found that we were seeing a lot of variability coming from the rolling devices. So any device that you use to roll, like a stent meter that you use to roll the ball down that surface, you get these random effects. And we observed those in the lab and we decided, hey, let's see if we can collect data on that. And we did. We used a high-speed camera and we tracked the ball as it rolled down the stent meter and the greens tester and some of these other types of devices. And what we would find is occasionally, not always, but as that ball is rolling down that hard surface, it's got those dimples. The dimples are there to create an airfoil so that you'll get 50 more yards on your drive. But they're not helping on a hard surface for the ball to roll straight. If you want to try that, just go to your kitchen table and roll a golf ball across. <laughs> it's going to just go in random directions because if that ball is rolling forward and there is a little crater right there where it needs to make contact next, it's going to lean in the direction of the crater until it finds a surface to contact. And so on the rolling device, like a step meter, that will generate a wobble or an oscillation. Oscillation, we didn't use that term in our work because uh, an oscillation has to be a regularly recurring event. Huh. Uh, what we have were wobbles. But anyway, the, when the ball developed a wobble, it would exit the device at a random direction. And we were able to collect data to, to prove that. Uh, we quantified the amount of wobble, and then we correlated that strongly to variable exit directions. So we did all of this work, tens of thousands of balls. We finally got a method that we felt comfortable going to the field. We still had. So when we went to the field, uh, that's when we really started to solidify the stuff that we were already seeing in the lab about what we called legacy effect. Uh, let's say you're using a stent. I would not recommend that you roll, if you just hold the stamp in one stationary position and roll all three of your balls off of that one position. The reason is we call legacy effect. The first ball leaves a legacy behind that the other balls will fall in that track and they'll go further and they'll stay consistently in the same track. We couldn't have that. And so we did some work in the lab, in the field also to prove that that was happening. I think that's what you referenced a minute ago, yeah. real tight strikes versus uh, when we brush the canopy. That's correct. So brushing the canopy, unfortunately, we lose mower imparted grain or, or some other things that might be of use to investigate. But we had to brush the canopy. We used a light bristle brush and we went in two directions back and forth. The reason for that was is to eliminate any effect that the previous ball would have on the next ball's roll. Mm -hmm. And we were able to take some data to show that that was a real effect and to show that our method was eliminating it. Excellent. And so we moved on from there. And the last thing that we had to deal with was, I call it terminal deceleration or when the ball stops at the end. Okay. That's what you're basically saying with terminal deceleration. And hopefully that journey ends in the bottom of the cup. 
Exactly. Well, you know, if it ended in the bottom of the cup every time, none of this would be relevant. But yes, as uh, as we're learning to play golf and we're learning to putt, we are trained to putt the ball past the cup, right? Uh, the average golfer is going to putt the ball, what, 12, 14, 18 inches past the cup. The pros, I'm told, have the confidence to putt the ball eight feet past the cup and knowing that they can putt it back from that type of distance. Well, if you can putt the ball four to eight feet past the cup, nothing that I'm talking about today, Frank, is relevant because there are no green surface factors that's going to impart enough impact on the ball to affect your putt. I am saying that if you strike the ball with such force, such that it has so much momentum that when it reaches the cup, a missed putt will fly past that cup and end eight feet down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm saying if you're putting that much force behind the ball, the frictional forces on the green are highly unlikely to steer the ball astray. But what we're trained to do is put the ball 12 inches past the cup if you have a missed putt. A couple of uh, revolutions of the ball. You're hitting it harder. Yeah, so if you hit it harder, which is what the pros do, then you should have less potential for surface anomalies to steer the ball astray. But if you hit it softer and your plan is to let the ball stop within 12 inches of the cup on a missed putt, then there's plenty of opportunity for surface characteristics to steer the ball away, like Paul Annual, like we've been talking okay. about. So you identified from that method that annual bluegrass in ball mark size patterns that normally happens, uh, you know, in the early invasion stages of a new putting green where maybe, yes. you know, where you still are doing hand picking and you haven't got your chemical program or, or whatever, you found mm -hmm. that those ball marks impart significant impact on the trueness of that role. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so here's what we did. We tried to pick the most real life patches of annual bluegrass. We did not go after like behemoth seed producing plants or none of that stuff. This was not worst case scenario. If you close your eyes and rub your hand across the turf where one of our annual bluegrass patches uh, existed, you would not feel a thing. The only way you could tell they were there is you could see they were there. You could tell there was a slight difference in texture, a slight difference in color. So those were the types of patches we chose. They ranged in diameter from, like you said, a ball mark to up to a silver dollar, mm -hmm. depending on the plant. So we had a, a laser transit. We had to pick sites that had about six to eight inches of width where there was almost zero side to side slope along that path. And we wanted a annual bluegrass patch on the left or right side and clear bent grass on the other side. So we needed a path that had enough visually perfect bent grass where there was a single patch of annual bluegrass. I mean, this wasn't too hard to find. The problem was slopes. Right. You know, if, if you had like this cup or indentation on one side, we couldn't use that transit. So we collected all this data on slope and all these things. And it turns out no matter which way we analyze that slope data, it really didn't become a significant factor. Huh. Uh, the bluegrass was, but slopes and things like that, the same thing happened regardless. Uh, and that was not what I expected. Huh. I expected slope to magnify any effects we saw such that we would get larger spreads or, or more deviation of repeated ball rolls. And you're talking down the slope and up the slope. Yeah, we went down slope, up slope. We even went across slope. Okay. And on across slope situations, I expected if I went astray, I expected to be thrown way further astray. And I, we really didn't see that happening. It may have been because if you're on a slope, if you have plenty of momentum behind the ball, it's going to make a nice, smooth arc, right? It's only when the ball starts to slow down that the slope will just go crazy. That's with. right. 
and so will the deflections. As the ball exactly. comes to the terminal deceleration, as you described it, or at the end of the roll, and you see this all the yeah. time on TV as they can get those cameras near the ball watching the ball slowly come. In fact, the faster the greens are, the more the ball is rolling slowly enough to experience right. that deflection. And then you saw that, well, slope didn't matter, but it appeared the annual bluegrass patch that you couldn't feel, but you could see did matter. Yes. And so what we did, so to get rid of that terminal deceleration, we invented a, a method of scoring the ball's position in a path by having it strike a pressure-sensitive mm -hmm. paper. So we put a metal plate and the putt was intercepted one foot prior to... The beginning of the terminal deceleration. Yeah, whatever the at-rest position of the ball would have been on a completed putt, we backed up 12 inches from that. We placed a metal plate, and we let the balls that were putted after that point strike this plate. Hmm. And the mark that the ball made on that pressure-sensitive paper was the score of plus or left-right deviation on the line. What we found was that if you were putting on pure mm -hmm. bent grass, visually perfect bent grass, then a perfectly aligned putt should hole out on the average on a 12-foot putt. But if you place a patch of annual bluegrass in that path, you reduce that distance to somewhere in the neighborhood of six or seven feet. No kidding. Yep. Wow. If you want to look at it in uh, left-right deviation, which is the type of data we actually collected, mm -hmm. what happened was is when you're putting on pure bent grass, we actually got the exact same numbers that we got on synthetic turf in the lab, wow. which is about four to 4.5 millimeters plus or minus over repeated balls rolled. You're going to be you're errant 4.5 millimeters to the right or to the left per meter of travel. If you add annual bluegrass, that went up to 13 millimeters. Huh. And interestingly, if you're using the greens tester, which at the time was the only commercially marketed trueness device we had available to us. Of course, there were other rolling devices like the stint meter, but that's not a trueness device. Uh, we, we also used the greens tester and it was between 15 and 18 millimeters regardless. So, and, you know, again, based on the earlier lab work we had done, we're pretty confident in saying that's because of inherent variability in the device, right. not because of what you're measuring on the surface. It's clear measuring the trueness of roll on putting surface is a complicated endeavor. And now there's data to demonstrate how much deflection annual bluegrass can create on most bentgrass putting surfaces. And when we come back, Sean and I will begin the discussion of controlling annual bluegrass in bentgrass putting greens. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'd like to chat with you about the Plant Food Company, a liquid fertilizer manufacturer from Cranberry, New Jersey our newest sponsor, and an old friend. Plant Food is a solid third-generation family-owned business that's been focused on plant nutrition since its inception in 1946, when the company was founded by Edward Platts. I became familiar with Plant Food in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was initiated, and Plant Food immediately stepped up to support our efforts to reduce our pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. And I found this also to be true for other research programs, such as Rutgers University's anthracnose trials, where the plant food nutrient programs have always performed equally to most fungicide formulations. These guys think differently. They approach everything from a plant health perspective, and it works. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Let's get back to my conversation with Sean Askew as we turn now to his early experience and research with Poacure. 
I've got a brand new bent grass green. I've started to see the poa patches coming in, Sean. It's only about a two-year-old green. It's a flagstick 007 pure distinction blend that I put out there. And I'm starting to notice these poa patches. And I just read about poa cure and I'm from Chicago, right? I'm from Illinois where it's registered. I don't want to go through the history. I'm a superintendent with the problems that Sean asked you just described to me. What do I go through to find out if Poacure is right for me? I would say, number one, go to Poacure.com, read what they have available to say about it, talk to the manufacturer, Mm -hmm. talk to your colleagues, look at the extension literature that's available. Because it's widely tested, 200 golf courses, 30 universities, 20 publications. This is a brand new product to the market, but a well-studied product prior to release, correct? Right. It was very well studied. And, um, you know, everyone felt that release was imminent. There really weren't. uh, In the early days, when you look at the product's toxicological profile, you get the immediate impression, if you have any experience looking at these uh, pesticides, that, wow, this one's going to blow right through. It shouldn't really have any problems. Of course, we had this huge hiccup during the experimental use permit program surrounding uh, this restriction on drain tiles that sent the, the opposite message to the end user that, whoa, this product must have some problems. It turns out, really, that was an artifact of kind of flow through mm-hmm. in EPA. Yeah. You know, the EPA wants uh, rainbow trout data. Mogu, the company that makes this product, they already had Asian trout data from their registration in Japan and Korea. And uh, the EPA said, all right, they, they, they submitted a formal request. And the EPA said, sure, sure, sure. Just give us the Asian trout data. Well, they got about knee deep into the Asian trout data and someone within the agency decided, ah, no, no, I don't, I don't want this Asian trout data. I want rainbow trout data. Right. And at that moment, basically, they had to put the product over in a category where, okay, we have no aquatic data, which really wasn't true, but that's the category that it fit in is the moment they rejected the Asian trout data. So at that point, the Koreans had to scramble to generate the rainbow trout data because they were told Asian trout's cool. And when the EUP came through, they were in this category of no tox data for aquatic. Right. Even though all the Asian trout data showed no effect. And of course, when the rainbow trout came through, it also showed no effect. So looking at it, there was no tox issues. I remember setting in on an EPA panel with uh, the heads of every different group for the pesticide evaluation And the most quotable thing, at least to the client in this case, I was just testifying on their behalf. The most quotable thing that was said that day was the head of toxicology at EPA saying, looks like this is going to be another boring product. So we've got this incredible body of research that if they go to the Poacure website or you can go to the Turfgrass information file and just search your name around this, Sean, I'd recommend listeners to do that. Because it is a substantial body of work, and you'll find, if you search a person like you, Sean, a whole collection of research papers and industry articles that demonstrate this thing. But I really want to get to what a superintendent can do. Because when we met in our webinar, right, there's another conversation of us that you and I have had on our webinar that you can also apparently find on the Cure website, which is nice, where you talked about the unique way superintendents had access to this control product. So let's talk about, again, back to that superintendent in Illinois. It's registered there. I can use it on greens. What should I do now that I've heard this podcast? I'm going to the website and what's going to happen when I get there? Right. So one of the first things that people need to be aware of is right now, this is a tiny company. This is not Syngenta. This is not, you know, FMC. It's not BASF. They do not have the ability to weather a legal action storm. 
And we're, we're talking about a putting green herbicide. <laughs> so let's just say they're very risk averse. Right. So they are super, super concerned about risk right now. So one of the things that they are requiring, or I don't know if I would say requiring, but strongly, strongly suggesting is that new clients not use the product in their first year other than for experimentation and demonstration on their course. They, they only want to sell in this first year to clients that already have conducted experimentation on their facility. So if you go there and say, hey, I need this many pallets, they're going to say no, or they're going to say, whoa, 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 back up. So they're going to try to convince you, no, we would rather you just buy a few bottles. This is what we would recommend that you do and come back to us next year when you see the results of that and then buy exactly what you need. Of course, if someone persists and says, no, I want to get this done now for these reasons, then they're like, all right, well, we've got a, a waiver we'd like you to sign. You can do that. But they're strongly discouraging people. And right now, for a, re a related reason, they're not going through distributors at the moment. Right. So let's say I get through this process. I've tested it. I think I've got the program for me. I'm in Chicago mm -hmm. uh, on New Bentgrass Greens. What do you think that program is likely to look like as I roll it out the first year? Okay, so I, I just published a golf course management article that's a fairly decent summary of kind of what to look out for type of deal. But we'll quickly go through a couple of points. So you're going to be expecting uh, up to probably five applications per year in the Chicago area. And that's going to be two to three of those treatments are going to go out in the spring and two to three of those treatments are going to go out in the fall. The spring treatments are going to discolor the pole annua. They're going to slow its growth. You might get, if you really push your bent and try to up your fertility and you might get a little gains in cover. Frank, you gave me a very specific Chicago-based scenario, but did you did. tell me what percentage POA you were dealing with? I don't Let, remember. Let's say it is ballmark POA in the early stages, two to three percent. Very low. If we're in that scenario, then uh, your options, I would say, are expanded. Uh, you can get a little more aggressive. As long as you're not super aggressive on causing physical or mechanical stress to your green, if you're not one of those people that are out there every day tickling, scratching, whatever, you should be able to you know, get on the program rapidly. What I would do is I would be doing broadcast applications on the five treatment program, and I would supplement those with dabbing treatments. Okay. Because I would want to get rid of that POA quickly because it's such a low density. I'm not as worried about playability. If you were talking 10 to 15, 20% POA, at that point, we're trying to manage. We, we want to get rid of the POA, but we don't want to get rid right. of the POA. We want to get rid of it so slowly that the bent just marches over in its place. And so when I'm embarking on this plan, again, thinking about a superintendent of uh, new bentgrass greens, how long will it take for me to see? Let's say I've done my five applications and even if I've gotten to be more aggressive, are you saying that within 12 to 14 months of starting the program, I could be POA free? Uh, yeah, you could be uh, for sure. If, if you're talking 12 to 14 months, it's possible with this product to be POA free in eight weeks. On the scenario that we described. Not on any scenario that I would want to try to keep my job. <laughs> and the reason is, is because the uh, it's not necessarily, a, there is no bent concern there with, with that right. statement. Uh, I've done numerous studies where I've never registered or measured a single a bit of injury to bent grass. And I have blown POA out in six days. And, and so a lot of the impetus behind the strategy that you guys are using with POA Cure is... Number one, it's a putting surface, so the risk is high. We're going to really help you think through this. No, number two, the chemical doesn't really kill the plant very quickly. 
in the way the rates are designed. And number three, the strategy that we use to try to kill it will not always work very quickly. Right. How much does stress impact this? Let's say I've done my five apps and it's getting really dry and I've got a different situation. I'm at 15 to 30 percent POA. Am I going to see a more mm. rapid decline if I'm still using a, a normal program? Yes, that's the, the juggling act with this product. See, the beauty of the product is you don't have to worry about bent for the most part, unless something catastrophic happens that would shock a bent grass to the extent that you would get visual symptoms. You know, like I've seen that, you know, you can have a, an airification event uh, with top dressing and then the weather turns and you can actually, boom, you know, you can get a huge yellow discoloration to your bent. When that happens, you are losing a lot of roots. And in the presence of uh, an aggressive poacure program, you can actually, there are instances, rare instances where we have measured loss of bent grass. We have certainly measured uh, temporary loss of bent grass roots under these stressful conditions, whether it's heat or mechanical stress, you name it. But not exacerbated by the herbicide. Right. So under normal growing conditions, though, this product darn near can't injure bent. You have to have some other phenomenon to... To see the bent grass decline. Yeah. And so the things that'll make it more active, for example, would be if you had saturated crowns for two to three days, like if, if rain set in and conditions stayed saturated for several days, we have seen bent grass and pola rapidly turn yellow in, in response to that. Typically, it'll recover. But, but in general, uh, all things being equal, you know, except for extreme circumstances where you know, stress is bad for everything. Right. Generally speaking, you don't have to worry about bent. That's the beauty of it. The, the pro so the only thing we juggle, and it is a juggling act, uh, is the, the rate at which we remove the pola. So that's the challenge. And it's going to be highly dependent on environmental conditions. If, if environmental conditions are favorable for the POA, then the transition is going to be painfully slow, which that's what we tell you you need. And that's sometimes what you say you want. But when you're out there doing it, you never want that. You want to see that shit die. You know? and, and, and people get really frustrated when it's not happening. You know, I've seen scenarios where you don't even get really good symptom development on the POA until after three applications have been applied. Right. And, you know, it takes an iron wheel to keep spraying when you're not seeing anything after two apps, knowing our history with using pesticides. So it's clear that Polacure is a different kind of product used in a very unique situation. And when we come back with Sean Askew, we'll discuss the long-term use and other issues with Polacure. I'm Frank Rossi, and this is Frankly Speaking. I'm here to chat with you about a product I've been personally involved with in research and education for over 15 years, Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Civitas combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses. They assist with the control of insects and diseases as well as increases in stress tolerance. Well, it sounds too good to be true, but the science and experience is solid in support of the programmatic use of Civitas, an OMRI-listed product that leads to reduction in pesticide nutrient and water use. A recent ban on pesticide use in Cape Cod led course managers to seek solutions with Civitas. Its use led to high-quality playing conditions with an 80% reduction in environmental risk. Learn more about Civitas turf defense available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com.
do I have to use this after one year? Do I got to keep coming back year after year on these five apps? Is there a different maintenance program? So right now, the maintenance program in a nutshell is, number one, you're going to be encouraged to utilize all possible avenues available to you for pole control. So the last thing that the company wants any practitioner to do is to depend solely on Polacure to control POA moving forward after they've removed their POA. So things like Trimit or Cutlass or, or related compounds that use those active ingredients, things like handpicking, Vincilide, any of the products that you are currently using in your strategy, you should continue to use. But there is a maintenance program that you can use also with Polacure. And the, the product will do a pretty good job at keeping a new green clean with just a couple of applications per year. Certainly, it will bring you down to a situation where picking escapes is very manageable. You can either pick those right. or you also have the polycure is so safe to vent that you can actually dab uh, those plants as well. Uh, you know, I know you don't play around with a lot of growth regulators, or I'm sure you've seen it in your research with POA over the years. Do you see superintendents making adjustments to some of their PGR programs that have been uh, simultaneously designed as herbicide programs for annual bluegrass as well as... Uh, you know, managing ball roll distance and growth on Absolutely. greens. Down here in Virginia, all of our PGR programs that are catered toward POA suppression have to be adjusted to environmental conditions. And right now, you know, we've had a lot of really cool data to come out from Krauser and now others on reapplication intervals for Primo. Right. And what I have seen, and maybe this is a topic of a full topic for debate, but what I have seen is a lot of people, and, and again, I'm going to say in my opinion, erroneously applying the same concept to Trimit or Flaprimidol, especially to Pacrobutazole Trimit. The whole Primo thing, the reapplication interval is based on rate of metabolism. The hotter it gets, the faster the plant metabolizes the Primo. So the hotter it gets, the more frequently you need to apply. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I can tell you in hot weather in Virginia, you do not do that with Pacrobutazole. No. Uh, for us, the hotter it gets, the lower the rate goes. And we typically will keep the application interval consistent. So one of the things that we're looking at, kind of uh, rubbing chins over moving forward, is to look at a two-week cumulative. Because another thing about these reapplication intervals being all over the place, superintendents, you know, it, it's easier to schedule if you can alternate your fertilizer fungicide apps compared to your PGR apps. So a lot of the guys that I know are, are doing, you know, this week they're going to do PGR, next week they're going to do fungicides and fertilizer, and the following week they're going to go back to PGR. And so what I think, uh, when it comes to Pacrobutazole, I would much rather see a two-week cumulative growing degree day to affect my rate rather than uh, manipulating my application frequency. And, and this also is both for POA control and growth retardation. Yeah, in, in the case of what I'm talking about right, right now is both. But what we want to do with Pacrobutazole is we want to maximize rate while maintaining quality in the type of growth regulation we want. And to do that best, in my experience, you need to maximize fertility programs, and those are offset with Pacrobutazole right. rate. And the people that are doing it best, they are monitoring clippings on their green. So that's correct. They go through so many passes over the green, they're going to dump that in a basket that's got a mark on it. If they're below the mark, then uh, that's going to be a data point. If they're above the mark, that's going to be a data point. If they're meeting the mark, they leave their rates the same. If they're below the mark, they're going to up their fertility on the on next week's fertilizer app. If they're above that mark, they're going to up their trim it rate on the next PGR app. Do you believe in this narrow environment of putting greens and bent grass that Poacure is in fact uh, that selective post-emergent control solution that's eluded us all these years? 
I do believe that Poacure is going to be outside of mercury-based products that have been removed right. from the market for environmental reasons. Yes, Poacure is going to be the best thing we've seen, period. Uh, if you exclude those mercury-based products, Poacure is definitely going to be a game changer. Is it going to solve all of our problems? No. Is it going to make everything absolutely easy? No. Uh, it, in itself, it's, it's a complicated, anytime you're putting a herbicide on a putting green, it's going to be a complicated endeavor. You, it better be a complicated endeavor. If it's not, you're the one that caused the problem here. If you don't see that as a complicated endeavor uh, and you're just trying to do it turnkey, then we got a problem. And let me say, eliminating annual bluegrass on a bentgrass putting green still requires you to grow the bentgrass well. What's nice and reassuring to know, based on the enormous body of research and testing done, that it doesn't appear this product is going to significantly injure bentgrass in any way, shape, or form beyond, you know, the ridiculous kinds of conditions uh, you know, of saturation that, that are, you know, outside the normal uh, conditions. We still see slow grow-ins on, on uh, cleanup passes, you know, if, and, you know, budget dictates what we can and can't do. But if you're using riding mowers on greens, you know, you're going a little bit too fast and you're just boring into those cleanup passes and causing, you know, noticeable patterns on the green. Those types of things, once we remove the POA, they're the ones that hold out to the end trying to get bent grass to grow back into those spots. So it's not only the fact that uh, we took the pole out, it's just that the, it, it's that the bent is coming in more slowly into those challenge shady spots. You know, that, that's where you're going to have the most challenges because you're going to blow the pole out eventually. And it's just going to take forever to get the bent to come back in. Festuka, I'll praise you. Ooh, I want to plant you. Bermuda, Bahia, or Zoysia grass can make you a great turf that I'll mow. Baby, why don't we grow Festuca underneath the tree? Sage advice and the dulcet tones of Professor Sean Askew, turfgrass weed scientist extraordinaire at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. It's home of the Hokies in the New River Valley of Virginia. Sean is a member of the excellent Virginia Tech turfgrass team, where he studies all things related to turfgrass weed science. Find a grower stand. You'll have a beautiful lawn if full sun is in your plan. That's what I want to grow best to go. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Plant Food Company, Greener Golf, Greenkeeper App, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced in my basement these days, but normally at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Creeping bent grass on our teeth. By mowing low, we'll get by with improved turf density. Kentucky bluegrass might have a nitrogen appetite. The dark green color is right. It'll have you saying, What a sight! That's what I wanna grow. Festuca, I'll praise ya. Ooh, I wanna plant ya. Bermuda, Bahia, or Zoysia grass can make ya a great turf that I'll mow. Baby, why don't we grow? It's a turf that I can grow. We'll sow it fast and then we'll mow it slow. That's my plan, but I'd like to know 
rescue My mowing will be through Everybody knows A perfect turf that they can grow Now if you want the right one Conditions at the site you sow We'll tell you what to grow Festuca, Alprasia, ooh I wanna plant ya Bermuda, Bahia, or Zoysia Grass can make ya a great turf that I'll mow Baby, why don't we grow turf that I can grow We'll sow it fast and then we'll mow it slow That's my plan, but I'd like to know which one to Festuca, Alprasia, ooh, I wanna plant ya Bermuda, Bahia, or Zoysia grass can make ya A great turf that I'll mow, baby, why don't we grow? Some turf that I can grow We'll sow it fast and then we'll mow it slow one to grow